Oh my gosh, it is such an honor for me to introduce to you, ladies and gentlemen, with the joy of Jesus, I bring you Emily Swan. Good morning, everybody. Man, I get introductions like that every single week. It's amazing, Ken. <laughs> oh, I saw that uh, U of M won and Michigan State won, so I think probably everybody's pretty happy today. Fall is here. I made my first apple pie yesterday. It was delicious. Had a campfire. This is my favorite time of year. I'm like so thrilled that it's cooling down, right? Can I ask you guys one question? I grew up in Indiana, and on our apple pie, I grew up melting sharp cheddar cheese on it. Did any of you guys do that? Okay, everybody. Yes. Okay, yeah, Andrea, Martha. Yeah, yeah, we got a few people. Okay, Ken did too. Okay, so it's not just an, there's a few of you here in Michigan who did that. If you haven't, just take my word. Melt some sharp cheddar cheese right over it, a little vanilla ice cream. It is like, it is so good. Is that just a little, a little fall tip for you all? Where is that in the Bible? I know, where is that in the Bible? I'm having a little moment here because I'm like, oh, I'm not finding the first page of my sermon, which is fine. I can just vamp. It may well be, may be that I had, I had a printer problem this morning. So I'm just going to talk. Good morning, everybody. We're starting a new sermon series. I think it's called Reclaiming Jesus for Justice and the Common Good. And this is going to be the first part of a five-part series that we're doing that will also serve as our membership series. So if you guys are new to Blue Ocean, I know there's a, several of you here who maybe weren't here last year. Just know that we, we do um, our membership, we renew it every year. So this is the time of year when we re-up our membership. Um, we ask people to make tithe pledges as you're able, because we're a church that serves and a church that gives. Um, we see ourselves very much as a church that's part of this new reformation that is going on in sort of the global, larger global Christian landscape. And what that means is every so often, every few hundred years or so, the church seems to sort of recalibrate and start to see what it is that's still working and what it is that needs to change going forward. And so for the last, especially 20, 30 years, it seems like a lot of American Christianity has been sort of deconstructing itself. You know what I mean? Sort of like deconstructing worship services to see what works and what doesn't. Deconstructing worship spaces. You know, you started to see people about 20, 30 years ago being like, well, could we have church in a bar? Could we have church in a coffee shop? Seems to be okay. I start recalibrating um, theology. Starting to hold on to what works and seeing what it is that needs to be discarded or maybe reimagined for the future. And I think Ken and I very much see our congregation and the work that we're doing here as part of this recalibrating or reimagining what the church could be going forward. And we spent the last two years, which was longer than we planned, writing the book that we wrote. Ken and I wrote a book called Soulless Jesus, where we were trying to take a look at everything that's been deconstructed in Christianity and start to pick up the pieces to try and reform something that could actually work going forward. And we wouldn't say that we think that we have like the way or the theology to go forward, but it's like one such offering that we are trying to work out here in this community. And so now that we've gotten through that writing it down phase, I think Ken and I are both really excited to just like do a little bit more focus internally on the community and start to think about inviting other people in as well. 
I know we've said from the beginning, we don't want to be a big church. I don't ever want to be a mega church. There's plenty of big box American churches that are out there, and that's great. There's a place for it. But we really want to be a church that is a space where people can come, where they can know each other, where you can meet Jesus, where it's fully inclusive, and we really try and love each other and do community well. And there are some people that we feel like um, if they've been harmed by another church, if they've been exiled or excluded from a church, if somebody you love dearly has had that experience, and you feel like there isn't another space for you to come to, we would welcome all of those folks in this church community. In other words, people looking for a church like ours, I want them to find us. So we're going to be looking at doing that over this next year um, and just thinking about being a really hospitable place. Um, and growing in Jesus together. So I think that was my first page. I, mean, I don't even know how that happened. So for our renewal, we're going to do something a little bit different this year because I feel like we are hitting sort of a different phase, um, after, you know, kind of post-book and Ken and I are looking to the future. We're going to invite you guys, those of you who are looking to become members, we'd really like for you to attend one of 12 different, we're going to meet with like small groups of people. 12 different times in October. We're open to more if needed. And we're calling these vision meetings. And so this is a space where we would like to get together with you and talk more in depth about the ways that the church is helping people behind the scenes, to talk about where we see things going, and then just get your input in a more intimate setting. Um, so we'll be holding these meetings, Canton, Milan, Ann Arbor, I can't remember where else, Ipsy, Milan, um, and there's a list on the back table. And we also emailed it to you, or we will this week. So there's this little, this little handy sheet that looks like that on that back table by the donuts. So when you go get a donut, and on the back is a list of these meetings. We would love it if you could make one of those. All right. So this week, I'm actually kind of excited about our, like, the actual meat of the sermon here. This week, I was just kind of thinking, and I was praying about the church, and I was pacing up and down my living room because I was trying to get my Fitbit steps. And <laughs> I totally lost this week, but that's okay. There's always next week. And I was just kind of praying out loud, and I was just saying, okay, Jesus, I would really just love for you to give us a picture um, of how you see us. I'd love for you to give our congregation just a picture of who we are and of what you want for us, and help us to see what it is that you're doing. And there's a story that kept coming to my mind that I couldn't get out of my mind that surprised me. And it's a story told in Luke chapter 5, and it's also told in Mark chapter 2. And I have to tell you guys, I don't think I've ever heard this story preached from the pulpit in my life. I've definitely heard it in Sunday school, but I don't think I've heard it unpacked because it's kind of a weird story. And I think there's something here for us. So in this story, Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching inside of a home in a fishing village called Capernaum. And it very well may be that this was Jesus' own house. The Gospel of Matthew tells us at one point that Jesus dwelled in Capernaum. He may have lived there for a brief period of his early life in ministry. So whether this is his home or the home of a friend, Jesus is teaching in a smaller living space. And we're told that a lot of religious leaders had come and they had gathered around him. And they were gathered not just from the region where Jesus was in, which was up in the northern part of Israel, but that people had come from further south. They had come all the way from Jerusalem and Judea. I mean, they had traveled probably four to six days walking. And so Jesus is teaching people in a crowded, small house that is filled with people sitting on the ground, standing, packed in. People are outside 
like some of the archaeological um, looks at Capernaum say they, they think that the houses were built relatively close together and that the streets were pretty narrow. And so people were lining up the streets outside, looking in the window, blocking the space up, trying to catch a glimpse or trying to hear what he is saying. And so Jesus is teaching there, and the text says that the power of the Lord was with him to heal the sick. And there was a man who was paralyzed, and he couldn't walk, and he desperately wanted to get into the house to see this great teacher and healer that he had heard about. And so some of his buddies, they went over and they took a hold of the mat where this man was laying and they tried to bring him to Jesus, but the crowds were so thick around the house that they couldn't get anywhere close to him. So these paralyzed man, um, the paralyzed man's buddies, they somehow got him up onto the roof of the house. And we don't know how. I don't know if it was close enough that they could go up a neighbor's and hop across roofs or go up the back. However they did it, they got onto the roof, which was flat, and it was probably made from a combination of um, wood beams, and then they would fill it over with um, various like branches and sort of a mud plaster. And that probably sounds a little bit more unstable than it actually is. It would have been solid enough for a family to sleep on the roof in the summertime, but not so firm that it couldn't be torn through. And that's exactly what this man's friends did. The Gospel of Mark says that they went in, they dug a hole in that plaster roofing, and they tied ropes to this man's mat, and they lowered him down into the center of the room where Jesus was teaching. And I was thinking about this. I took a walk last week, and I was trying to imagine what it would have been like to be in that room with Jesus. So if you can just imagine, you're in this small crowded room, it's probably a little bit warm, and you're listening to this man teach, and then suddenly you hear a commotion on the roof. Is it squirrels? Probably not in Israel. <laughs> what are people doing? Like, they're being so crazy outside. Like, who's, oh my gosh, are they actually getting up on the roof? And then you notice that bits of mud and plaster start to crumble down on your head. And then suddenly, they're punching a hole in the roof. And I can just imagine everybody sitting there like, are you kidding me? They're punching a hole maybe in Jesus's roof. And then all of a sudden you see their fingers and you see a hand and it starts pulling back the roof and that goes on for a amount of time because it would have taken a little time to tear that apart. And then when these, when these people finally get that hole big enough, they got to figure out a way to actually, you know, like sort of jimmy their friend so they're not standing near that hole so they don't fall through. You know, they got to figure it out how they can get him at the right angle so they don't like drop him or do anything and they, they lower him down it would have been a chaotic mess that everyone was looking up and being like, what are you doing? And as he comes down, you can just imagine there's people sitting on the floor, they're packed in like sardines, and now they're trying to scoop back to make some room right near Jesus where this man was being laid on the floor. And then the text says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Right? When Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the man's friends, plural, he said to the man, singular, friend, your sins are forgiven. You guys hearing that, friend? When Jesus saw their faith, friend, your sins are forgiven. That's a weird thing to say. 
And we're told that the religious leaders in the room with Jesus thought, well, why does Jesus talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And in Luke, it says, Jesus knew what they were thinking. He said, why are you thinking all of these things in your heart? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? I'd rather say your sins are forgiven. But I want you to know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them. He took what he'd been lying on and he went home praising God. And everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. And they were filled with awe and they said, we have seen remarkable things today. So let's rewind just a little bit here and look at this situation a little more intently, right? The problem that this story, which is a strange story, right? You see a paralyzed man and you say your, your sins are forgiven because of their faith. What does that mean, right? The, the problem that the story sets up initially is pretty clear, right? On the one hand, the, the text tells us that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal, and on the other hand, the text also tells us that this healing wasn't available to some people who were outside the house and couldn't get in, right? So Jesus had the power to heal, but that power was imprisoned and it was contained by the multitude of people around him. And according to Luke, who gives us this very specific detail, he said that the people blocking the way were religious teachers who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the text doesn't say that these people are bad people. It doesn't say that they're ill-intentioned people. There are other passages that do speak of some teachers that way, like when Jesus calls them vipers. But that's not what's being said here. The Jewish teachers of the law and the Pharisees who were gathered around Jesus, they took scripture really seriously and they studied it. And these particular Pharisees and teachers are sufficiently interested in Jesus to have sought him out, to have traveled for maybe four to six walking days to come and learn from him and to dialogue with him, right? From, from distant places. But the problem is that while these people are sitting around Jesus to listen to his teachings, outside the house there are other people in need, people who can't reach Jesus precisely because those sitting in front of him are forming a barrier around him. Dr. Justo Gonzalez, who's a Methodist theologian, he points out that among the people who were outside trying to get into the house, that we see the extremes of weakness and of daring. Right? That we see people of differing physical abilities, outside, unable to get in. And we see people with bold, liberating imaginations who are also having trouble getting in. And at the center of this group is a man on a mat. And he's limited by his circumstance much more than people usually are because his own body is a hindrance to getting to see Jesus rather than a help for him. But this lame man and his friends, they have overwhelming hope. They've heard about this Jesus. They have creative power and they have a gutsy courage you know, if there's no way through the door, if they can't get through the streets, if the windows are offering them no more than maybe a distant glimpse of Jesus, their imagination allows them to find a way through the roof. Perhaps the paralyzed man himself dreamt up that plan and that others dared to act on it. Perhaps he was one of those with bold, liberating imaginations as well. 
And so in this way, these excluded people, these marginal ones who couldn't even break into the circle around Jesus, they find a way in. Or rather, they make a way where there was not a way. Right? In fact, they had to dig through the roof. They might have dug through Jesus' roof. And Luke tells the story, they led him down with his bed into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And I think the words into the middle are important. Right? The paralytic is placed closer to the center than the teachers and the Pharisees. And that's when Jesus says that weird thing. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Weird thing to say to a guy who can't walk. And I read several uh, different commentaries on this particular passage, and most of them don't even address it. There's really only one that I think got it, which was odd because it's a, a more conservative Anglican theologian named N.T. Wright. But most of them just gloss over this particular story saying something like, well, Jesus cared more about the man's spiritual health than about his physical health. So he tended to that first, which is fine. But I think it might have more to do with what was meant by the word sin in this context. Friend, your sins are forgiven. I think it's so hard for us modern Westerners in particular to understand the entirety of what was contained in that concept of sin in first century Judea. In fact, I almost ditched the sermon because I felt like it just might be too much to unpack in this talk. Rachel was like, oh man, that word sin, that's going to be, that's going to be a little bit rough. I feel like we almost need multiple English words to really understand the nuances, but all we have is the word sin to cover this whole range of meaning. Because when we think sin, we think about things that we do that are wrong or evil, or we think about systems that are unjust or evil. And that's true, right? That's very much part of the world of the first century as much as it is part of ours now. That word just means missing the mark, right? It's like an arrow that's been shot that just sort of misses where it was supposed to go. But in Jesus's day, you could also be found in a sinful state if you violated purity rules that kept you out of the temple. You could be found in a sinful state if you violated purity rules that kept you out of the temple. And those purity rules had nothing to do with whether or not you missed the mark or whether or not you had done something wrong. Right, so for example, a menstruating woman would have been in a sinful state. She couldn't enter the temple in Jerusalem. And in fact, anyone who touched anything that she touched would be in a sinful state. And they would have to go through a ritual to be returned to the status of being clean, meaning that they could participate in communal life again, and that includes religious communal life. Anyone who touched a dead body would be considered in a sinful state. Anyone with a skin disease or someone who touched someone with a skin disease would be in a sinful state. That's why lepers were counted among the sinners and the outcasts in Jesus' day. And there's evidence that people who were physically sick or who had differing physical abilities like this paralyzed man, they were considered unclean. They were considered to be in a sinful state that kept them isolated from the wider community. And it seems that some people actually equated physical limitations with immorality. Right? Some people equated physical limitations with immorality. There's this story in John chapter 9 where Jesus comes up and he encounters a man who's been blind from birth. And his disciples, they turn to him and they're like, okay, rabbi, who sinned? Was it this guy or was it his parents? 
that he was born blind. In other words, whose fault is it that he's blind? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And then he healed him, right? So Jesus is countering this idea that physical ailments are a result of wrongdoing. Jesus is very much of the school that says that physical limitations and illnesses and unfortunate events are not caused by God or by doing bad things, right? In Luke chapter 13, there's some people that are they're standing around and they're saying, well, there's this group of Jewish people and they were really brutally killed by the government in a way that was, made them clearly more sinful than anyone else. They must have deserved that. And then they were talking about how there were people who were crushed and killed by a silo that fell over and collapsed. And they were like, well, they're clearly more sinful than other people that God would kill them. And Jesus looks at him and he replies, he says, that's ridiculous. Bad things happen to people. Bad things don't happen to people because they're less moral than other people. Right? So when Jesus is saying to the paralyzed man, friend, your sins are forgiven in front of all of those religious teachers, we know he's not saying, because you're paralyzed, you're clearly more corrupt than anyone else, so your sins are forgiven. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> Hashtag you're welcome. <laughs> No, he's showing the people who have had the power to exclude this man from the full embrace of communal life that he has done nothing to deserve this exclusion. Like, you're still lame, and yet I declare you ritually clean. Right? You're still lame, and yet I declare you ritually clean. That's what your sins are forgiven means in this context. And then only then did Jesus heal the man physically. Because he needed the teachers to know that the inclusion of this man in community did not depend on his physical abilities. Are we getting this? I'm going to put a really fine point on it for us. Sometimes well-meaning religious teachers, and this can include me, sometimes we keep people from accessing Jesus. And sometimes we ascribe immoral attributes to whole categories of people based on something about them. Right? We queer people certainly understand this. Many of us have had trouble accessing Jesus and the full fellowship and life of the community because religious teachers created barriers for us. And some people do ascribe immoral attributes to us that they say are inherent to gay people. And I listed a couple, and I don't think that I will, because frankly, it's just a little bit triggering. It's not that healthy to even listen to them. We get labeled as inherently immoral. And we're not the only category of human that gets labeled that way in our culture. Right? There are people who suffer mental health issues that are stigmatized. Or I think sometimes about how poor people are characterized. Right? As lazy mooches and they're just leeching off hardworking people. You know, which is kind of like saying you're, you're a thief, you're a lazy thief. Right? The, the poor are ascribed immoral characteristics or sometimes even just how we're thought of as men or as women. You know, some men deal with that. If you're not in the certain category of quote-unquote manly, or if you don't make a certain amount of money, you're considered slothful. Or how women are sometimes characterized as malicious or promiscuous, which imply a moral judgment, or else we're thought to be, you know, incompetent or confused. And this is how shame works, right? When we make people feel like they don't belong on an equal footing because something about them is inherently wrong. And I think Jesus rejects that idea. And I want to pause here for just a moment and acknowledge that it's been a really hard week, a really hard two weeks for women. 
and for men who have been sexually assaulted and for everyone who cares about these women and men in their lives. I know I have found myself reliving certain experiences that I've had where I didn't speak up and the reasons why I didn't do that, or reliving when I did speak up and I was disbelieved, or when I spoke up and it was shrugged off as boys will be boys, or that's just how men are, which by the way is so demeaning to men. And I think for anyone who's experienced any kind of sexual trauma, this has been just impossible to avoid. And speaking directly to that Kavanaugh nomination, you know, I think the FBI investigation is wise. I think it's always wise to investigate accusations. But that said, the National Violence Resource Center estimates that only between 2 and 6% of sexual allegations made are false. People rarely make false accusations of that nature because of the traumatic aspect of it. And I think what's been really painful to watch are the assumptions by some that women are inherently confused or mistaken or not remembering correctly or out to smear someone. And those assumptions play into stereotypes about women that equate our sex with immorality and with ineptness. And I just want to say to any of you here today, whether you're male or female, if you've been sexually assaulted, that you are loved by God you are not less than. Your story is valid. And I am so sorry if you've been told otherwise. And I would just say, if you have a story that you need to share that maybe you haven't, I'm happy to have coffee with you and listen. And this devaluing um, of a person's humanity in this way is what I'm getting to this morning. This is really the heart of it. That these inherent assumptions about our worth and our humanity, that those are not helpful and they're what I think Jesus is rejecting. The paralyzed man in the story is not inherently immoral or inept. Right? And that doesn't mean he doesn't sin in the sense that we all do bad things sometimes, right? He's not perfect. We queer people are not perfect. I mean, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. Poor people are not perfect. You know, I don't think it's good to romanticize the poor either. People with mental health issues are not perfect. But Jesus here, I think, is speaking to that other kind of sin when he tells that lame man his sins are forgiven. He's saying, I declare you ritually clean. There is nothing about your physicality that should keep you from my presence, from the presence of God, from the presence of the religious community, or from your neighbors. And I want that to be known today in the company of those with power to exclude you. And the people whose faith made it possible for Jesus to declare that in front of the religious elite were those who hauled the paralyzed man onto the roof, who dug a hole, and who lowered him down into Jesus' presence. Right? When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, you are welcome here. Right? It took the faith of the man's friends to help bust through the crowds of religious teachers. And these friends had to have the belief that it was more than fine for their friend to be in the presence of Jesus and all of these rabbis. He would have made them all unclean. Right? They had to have the hope that Jesus would see and restore this man to community and that he would have his back. And they had to have the audacity to climb on the roof and haul their friend up there as well. And they had to have the ovaries to start digging into somebody's roof. <laughs> Maybe even Jesus' roof, right? Without them making the way, that lame man couldn't find Jesus. 
You know, much of our purpose in ministry here at Blue Ocean is including the people of our time who have been told that they can't access Jesus or the church because something about them is inherently wrong. And a large portion of these people in our time are LGBTQ+. And it has taken friends and allies to help clear a path through religion, to dig the hole through exclusion so people like me and Rachel and Carla and Lisa and Lisa, and I'm just looking back here, and Michael, that we can all be into the presence of Jesus. It's taken the faith of straight people to help make this a reality in this church. You know, this church is a spiritual oasis for the queer community. It's a place where we can get into the presence of Jesus and hear him tell us, look, the faith of these, all you straight people, you imaginative and brave people, that faith has made a space for you. And your stigma is meaningless in this place. There is nothing about you that makes you any more sinful than anyone else here. We are all sinners and we are all welcome. Amen. Yeah. It's a place where Jesus wants to wash our shame away. It's a place where those things that make us feel less than are left at the door. And we do this by simply being church. You know, there were a few, a few weeks back, I think it was after Andy preached, I got up and I spoke specifically to straight people and it was just kind of on the whim, might say in the spirit. And I'll say it to you straight people who are part of this again. You have no idea how important it is to have straight people here doing church with us, queers, because you guys represent the mothers and the fathers and the grandparents and the uncles and the aunts and the sisters and the brothers and the friends and the churches that have rejected us, the pastors who have said that we don't belong. And just by showing up and worshiping like normal, whatever that means, right? Do a normal church, you show us that we belong to the people of God, right? We can just go to church without stigma. And that is so powerful. And it's because of your faith, those of you who had the audacity to go around the religious crowd and to say that that isn't okay and that you're going to lower us down through the roof anyway, that we have space to be part of Jesus and heal and be part of the body of Christ, right? You guys are the friends on the roof. Even those of you who are not queer have found this to be a place of, not this place, but church to be a place of pain and sorrow. I hope not our church. We're not perfect. But I do hope we have the humility to learn from each other so that we have a safe space to belong and heal and grow and have long-lasting relationships and a space to create where we can teach the next generations that they are beloved just as they are, that they are welcome right as they are, and they are safe in the company of Jesus and his followers. And I want us to be a church that intimately knows the attractiveness of this Jewish rabbi. Right, that he's worth knowing in spite of the barriers to faith that have been placed in our space and our time. I want this to be a place where after we understand our inherent belovedness and belonging, that we can be healed, right? That we can get up and walk again. We can run again as a sign of the healing presence of Jesus in our lives. And I want to say, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying queer people need to be healed of their queerness. I am categorically rejecting that. Right? But when I see Jesus healing the lame man after walking him back in community, it was a miraculous sign to the disbelieving that Jesus did in fact have the authority to welcome this person back into full inclusion. Right? So it's not a perfect metaphor, but I would say that if there's anything to be said about that, that this is like the evidence that the Holy Spirit was doing something in that space was that that man was able to get up and fully embrace who he was in the community and be restored. 
And all of those religious teachers that said at first that they thought Jesus was blaspheming God. But by the end, when they saw what he had done, it said that they were rejoicing and praising God. Right? So it took them a little bit of a, a heart shift to see it happening. And so my prayer for our congregation, for those of you who are here, is that just the Holy Spirit would breathe on us in the presence of Jesus, that we would find a place where we are able to be embraced as we are, and that that will allow us to achieve measures of healing in our own lives as we're allowed to be our whole selves in the wholeness of community. And so with that, I'm going to invite us into a meditation we often do two to three minutes of silent meditation or guided meditation. And I want to do a very specific one today. And that's, I want us to put ourselves in this story. Now, I could easily be the person on the mat, the person helping break through and lower people on the mat, or one of the religious teachers. You know what I mean? Like some of our identities are more than one of these things. But I'd like us to either choose like one of the people who's lowering the man down or you're on the mat. And I'm going to take us into that story. You can pick one of those that you feel like you most identify with. And let's let, let's let the Spirit guide us through our imagination. So let's take a deep breath and first start by just imagining this small, crowded street with these tinier homes that have flat roofs and that those streets are just filled with probably men, if they were the religious teachers of the time. And picture trying to get through and not being able to. If you've not done a meditation like this, it's sometimes helpful to pay attention to your senses. What do you see? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? Just put yourself into the picture. Now look around and see if you can find a way to get onto that roof. Now, if you're one of the friends on the roof, imagine yourself just starting to dig down into that roof. And if you're picturing yourself on the mat, just be like, what are you doing?
And as a hole in the roof opens up, what do you see as you look down? What are you looking at? Now imagine what it would be like to lower someone down or to be someone lowered down with all of the clumsiness and, oh no, don't drop him, that goes with that. And what it feels like if you're imagining yourself on the ground, on the mat, laying on the ground looking up, and you're surrounded by a bunch of religious teachers who believe that if they touch you, that they will be in a sinful state. And the helplessness of being placed lower than them and of your body not functioning the way others function. Like what a vulnerable state that is to be brought into Jesus' presence. And if you're on the roof, imagine Jesus looking up with you, at you and making eye contact. And just saying, because of your faith, this person can be restored to community. And if you're on the ground, just imagine Jesus looking at you and saying because of their faith, you were able to be fully part of what we are doing here. You are close to me and I'll have your back in front of all of these people who might be afraid of you. Jesus, I thank you for this picture that you gave our community for what I think that you're doing right now with us. Or that it's a space of audacious boldness and imagination, of incredible faith. It's a space where we trust that your presence is the safest place that we can be, where we trust that you are with us, that you are embracing us, I was remembering that Steve Gray, who's on our board, he called us a miracle church. He's like, we're already the miracle church, like the fact of our existence. And I kind of thought of that when I was thinking about this thing. I said, Lord, just thank you. Like, I feel like you've already done a miracle just in that we exist. And I asked, Lord, that you would help us to 
run and to witness to others of what it is that you're doing here as a church. And I ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would just fill us with your divine love, that we would fully understand that we are welcomed by you, that we are beloved, that there's nothing about us that would keep us from knowing you or being part of your community. And I ask, Lord, that you empower us to extend that embrace to those around us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.